0: Weekly Weights, Will goes on dates And Hayes is late But we're still mates And as of late We educate and postulate
1: About the gym I lift more than both of you combined Oh yeah, this is Weekly Weights with Alex and Will
2: Kablam, it's Weekly Weights I'm Will Berkman With me is Alex Hayes and with us is now officially our, our guest co-host with the most appearances on Weekly Weights other than Alex It's... <laughs> <laughs> no, this is actually a co-tie
0: for third A co-tie? But, sorry, is there a, such a thing a co-tie? A tie a co-tie. for first with three appearances
2: Who's had three appearances? Because Chrissy's also had three appearances oh yeah, oh yeah, so she has co-tie to tie Yeah, I was going to say What Toe leaders Okay, well we've Co- got leaders. Lift Performance Centre's Resident Polymath Luke Tulloch Can you just confirm or deny Whether co-tie is a word? Uh, I'd have to deny Sorry <laughs> <Must be. laughs> no. It's surely a word That doesn't mean What I'm saying What well, I think what you've done Is invented a word That's probably going to come Into common parlance Like, immediately As soon as this airs uh, Yeah, I feel like it, it does everything That tie does but just better <laughs> you know shouldn't they like, like cance- it's, wouldn't it's, they like cancel each other out though no it's not like two negatives make a positive it's not like you say co-tie which means there was a clear winner it's like if you say this was like a victorious win like it just makes people understand that it's a win with the extra condition of a victory just sounds you like it just sounds like bow tie that's true. <laughs> That's also true. <laughs> <so we've> got, <laughs> we're start. off to a screaming level. bit and, yeah. um, and we're hoping that the rest of the episode can stay up to that standard of information. We're talking with Luke today about fatigue. Mm. Um, and I'd say that as, as fitness professionals generally, but in the case of powerlifting coaches, certainly we probably have a preoccupation with the training that we do and the prescription of training variables without necessarily actually considering the other half of the equation so we think we train and we adapt but we don't necessarily think as much about recovery and the importance of balancing the training stimulus that we provide with it Um, and we also don't think about what the limitations are necessarily within a session on how much work we can do so we've gotten Luke on to talk about fatigue, its physiological basis and the practical implications of that for programming Um, Luke before we get too deep into it, can we just like establish what would be a good operational definition of fatigue? I
1: think if we just talk about it in the context of training, it's your ability to repeat a performance. And that's like the easiest way of thinking about it. But I think we can also break that down into acute versus chronic uh, fatigue. And I don't mean chronic fatigue in the sense of like the medical condition. I mean it more in a case of like a longer timeline than just within a session or within a day or two but over a longer period of training but it's
2: really just the ability to like repeat a performance whatever that that happens to be okay and we i guess so that would be that would be almost tied to the exact definition that we often use of recovery which would be yeah your ability your ability to repeat a totally um when we describe fatigue though we also we also need to probably give some type of a tip of the hat to like the difficulty of the performance so say if you do some maximal work is it is it staying the same degree of submaximal or is it becoming increasingly maximal due to the accumulation of fatigue? So there's something else there that maybe needs description as well.
1: Yeah, sure. I think like, I mean, as we get into it and we see what contributes to fatigue, I think that'll be a bit clearer um, because it, you know, it operates in, in different areas. If we sort of come compartmentalize it in the, in the system, like we're going to talk a little bit more, I think about central fatigue and peripheral fatigue. Mm -hmm. So, you know, whether that's localized to the muscle that we're training or whether that's coming from our nervous system and whether we can sustain, uh, you know, muscular contractions from the signals being sent by the brain. Um, You know, there's a variety of things happening uh, there as well. So it starts to get a little bit, muddy and it can work on on multiple levels uh, so I think trying to define it can be a bit tough but I guess the main point is that it's going to uh, essentially ma- I've, I've said it before but uh, how fatigue masks fitness which is a really common term in strength and conditioning and essentially just saying that as fatigue accumulates over time um, we tend to find that you're unable to express what you're physically capable of and I guess that happens on a variety of different levels so um, as we get into it, I suppose we'll kind of uh, delineate that a bit better.
0: Sweet. So you, you alluded to it in your answer there, but the two types of T's, central and peripheral. Yep. First yep. of all, what are they? How do they differ? And then what are the, some of the similarities between them and how
1: they overlap? Yeah, so whenever we say central, we mean the central nervous system, meaning your brain and your spinal cord. And then peripheral will mean anything outside of that, essentially. So stuff out in the tissues. And we have uh, basically two separate areas where fatigue occurs as a result of that. So in the central nervous system, we can have reduced output to the working muscles. So that original signal that's sent from the brain or the spinal cord can be reduced. um, And that can occur actually as a result of peripheral fatigue as well. So they do overlap a little bit there. And then peripheral fatigue has more to do with stuff that's local to say the contracting muscle. So that would be stuff like um, depletion of fuel sources, for example. So you could have your ATP start to run out. You could have... um, lower glycogen stores you could have lower blood glucose levels you could have increasing metabolites or waste products around that area and all of that can kind of lead to uh, what we term peripheral fatigue so they are a little bit separate but that peripheral fatigue can actually induce some central fatigue and that's via what we call afferent signaling so just to explain a little bit what afferent signaling is it's basically uh mostly involved with sensory perception and it's signals that go back to the central nervous system. So kind of the way our nervous system works is that you can either send a signal out to the periphery, we call that an efferent signal with an E, and you can have information that comes from the periphery back to the central nervous system, we call that afferent with an A. So this afferent signaling is essentially sensory signaling. It's the same type of signaling that works when, you know, the rods and cones in your eyes are detecting light or whether you're sensing pressure or touch or temperature. And all of that goes back to the brain. And when we get local fatigue, peripheral fatigue, that can accumulate and it can send signals back to the brain um, via type uh, group three and four afferents, which are quite small um, nervous pathways, I suppose. And that can uh, actually induce central fatigue. So to give you an example of what that would look like, you could be training your biceps. And because of these signals being sent back to the brain, because your biceps are tired, you can now reduce the amount that the... Uh, signal is sent out to other muscle groups so in that sense peripheral fatigue in one muscle is obviously going to affect that muscle most but it can also send the signal back to the central nervous system which can reduce its output to other muscle groups and so obviously that has some implications for how we train and the exercise order we do and stuff like that so central and peripheral fatigue just to kind of summarize that little spiel is separate in a way but they are also linked and they do
2: overlap I'm really glad that you, you immediately use that example of the bicep curl inducing some peripheral fatigue, <laughs> not because coach, I've been skipping my bicep curls in the program. I should probably, <laughs> I should probably front up and say that you can't tell. Um, we <laughs> haven't got the video feed happening for the podcast yet, but the guns are looking good. I've only got fat tips. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I've been eating more, just training less. Um, but no, I'm glad you brought that up because I think I think something that anecdotally a lot of powerlifters experience is particularly as their as the competition lifts get heavier and heavier, their drive to get through accessory work really well goes down. Yep. And I'm not sure whether this is entirely a misconception based on what you just said, but you know, oftentimes people will say, like, my CNS is shot, therefore I can't do my accessories very well. Do you think in some part that might be described by Um, by that efferent signaling from, say, you know, the fatigue you've done from doing a deadlift, then telling your brain basically, hey, I'm going to feel sluggish now and we're not going to do our bicep curls as Alex prescribed? (laughs) I think it it definitely has something to do
1: with that. Um, You know, when you're using a ton of muscle and the aerobic demand is pretty high as well, you tend to get a greater accumulation of fatigue. So for things like, you know, if you've ever done... um, especially if you're a powerlifter and maybe your conditioning is not as good as some other <laughs> <laughs> athletes out there. They'd be um, very careful. We have a, we have yeah. a
2: really touchy listenership <laughs> of very, very fat people. They're all breathing through <laughs> their mouths.
0: <right> now. <laughs> well, I'm still out of breath walking up the tiny hill.
2: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's why Alex hasn't said a word this podcast. He's, he's got his CPAP in. <laughs> that's
1: right. Go on. Um, you know, so if your conditioning is not fantastic, uh, let's say it could be slightly better and you're doing, you know, sets of eight to 10 that are pretty hard uh, with a squat or a deadlift or something like that. Um, you know, the the amount of aerobic stress is really high because you're involving a lot of muscle and there's a lot of... Um, substrate depletion happening and so the the amount of fatigue that you're generating from that is through the roof and that's definitely going to affect neural drive uh, when you go to do your accessories so Mm. it's definitely something to try and take into consideration and i think it has a lot to do with uh like Your subjective feelings of of how difficult stuff is as well Mm. Um, and and how you want to engage with the rest of your session then too. Uh, I definitely experience that too. If I'm going to do like a ton of squatting in a leg day, then I don't really feel like doing too much else on that day. Um, Whereas if I was still generating a ton of fatigue doing things like leg extensions or leg curls or whatever, Like then you, you still feel like you can keep going with that and accrue quite a lot of volume. Mm. Um, even though you could argue that possibly the peripheral fatigue you're generating is like the same. Yeah. Or maybe even more with isolated movements, you know, which is pretty interesting.
2: So I think what I'd like to do is wind back just a little bit mm-hmm. because we've, we've started alluding to things like sending motor signals to the muscle you know substrate depletion all of that and so maybe if we could just in broad strokes talk about like with the actual process of generating force at the muscle mm. so you know starting from the brain um and then talk about you know where along the tracks we might see we might see fatigue occur or we might see some impairment of muscle contraction happening yep. then that way people can sort of at least be oriented for the rest of this discussion
1: yeah yeah cool let's keep it like pretty basic so um If you want to move your muscles the muscle fibers have to contract but they need to get a signal from the brain so the brain sends a signal uh, via a motor neuron which is just a nerve that's specific to muscles and that motor neuron will uh, send uh, an electrical signal that gets turned into a chemical signal inside the muscle so it zaps the muscle and the reason the muscle contracts is because there's a ton of calcium inside the muscle that gets released and that calcium is actually what causes the muscle fibers to contract so anywhere along that path, we could have you know, the reduction in the nervous system signal coming from the brain in the first place. We could have changes in, in like the calcium concentrations in the muscle. We could have other stuff surrounding the muscle that interferes with that, that chemical signal or that electrical signal. And that's essentially where fatigue is arising. So it, it's like quite a simple chain where brain sends signal down to motor neuron. Motor neuron electrifies the muscle. Muscle releases chemicals inside it that makes it contract. And that's the like the real basic side of it, um, and so anywhere along that chain we can have uh, factors that relate to fatigue. In other words, reducing our uh, ability to repeat our performance occurring. That, that's I don't know if you want more than that, but
2: well, I think we've now described basically everything from the brain to the contraction. Yep. Then you spoke about substrate depletion. So yep. That's that's talking about the, the compounds that actually give us energy for contraction. Yes. So within the muscle, you know, what, what do we need to actually fuel ongoing contraction? Cool. So there's a few things. Uh,
1: we need glucose and that can come from blood glucose or it can come from stored glucose in the muscle. So glycogen is stored glucose in the muscle. It can come from ATP, uh, which is adenosine triphosphate. Um, would, most people would probably have heard that before. You can have creatine phosphate, which is a similar kind of idea to ATP. These are just high energy uh, phosphate groups that help the muscle contract. Um, and then you need some oxygen to continue to replenish those stores of ATP. So we need oxygen, we need uh, glucose, whether that's blood sugar, whether that's glycogen. Um, and then fundamentally, we have ATP or creatine phosphate, they're helping the muscles contract. So those are all areas where we could run out of any one of those or have a a bottleneck there and that can cause fatigue
2: so would it be fair for me to sort of sum that up by saying we have we have sort of three really big obvious avenues for fatigue then one is are we able to send the signal to the muscle to continue it contracting another is are we able to provide fuel to the muscle to fuel the contractions and then the third one is the byproducts of contraction itself So the acids and things that we form that might impair muscle contraction, are we able to clear them off through the bloodstream or are we able to buffer them sufficiently to continue, continue contraction? So any one of them may contribute to impaired performance. Yeah. That's a really nice, concise way of putting it. Cool. Um, now you sort of alluded, or you've basically explained the ideas of central and peripheral fatigue. Mm -hmm. Um, and I sort of, I I already mentioned this possible misconception, um, among a lot of lifters that, that your CNS is the primary contributor um, to to impaired performance. The other one that I think people think about when they when they think about fatigue impairing performance is is complete substrate depletion so yeah. you know when people hit the wall in the marathon or bonk which i think is such a great term for it you know my favorite protein bar is called a bonk bar really i'm mm. oh, ungr- really good yeah, yeah. okay <laughs> <laughs> um, it's weird that it's a protein bar <laughs> yeah I know. because if it was like to, if it was the
1: anti-bonking food it would just be carbohydrates. yeah it'd be it's pure like, carbs no it's a protein it's actually a collagen protein bar i'm really embarrassed to tell you
2: but you know there's a couple of people who like who I consider really intelligent that are quite like they're I would say they're like positively skeptical about the role of collagen like they say basically there's not extremely strong evidence that it might work but there's all these potential avenues that it might and like the research isn't like resoundingly negative so there might be something to it like Alex Leaf is one um, and you know Lyle McDonald has said so as well that there might actually be a thing to collagen I think there might be something there but it's a lot of rodent research at the moment so yeah make of that what you will. I suppose Um, anyway we've gotten way off track (laughs) the point
1: is (laughs) this is now a collagen podcast
2: (laughs) I feel like we've done fatigue let's (laughs) talk collagen Um, but no I think so we think about fatigue and people basically they basically think my CNS is shot yep like direct quote all powerlifters yes my CNS is (laughs) shot or they think like there is no energy left in my muscles I've depleted all of my fuel stores therefore I can't perform exercise um, you again in broad terms you've alluded to other sources of fatigue but maybe we could address those two specifically and say yeah. what they may describe well and when they may not apply to powerlifting
1: I think CNS fatigue is one of those things that I find a bit difficult to quantify and separate out from peripheral fatigue to be perfectly honest I don't really understand why there's this delineation between it because they're, they're obviously a, a feedback mechanism that sort of tie into each other like, like I described before, if you're peripherally fatigued, you're inducing CNS fatigue, right? Um, so I think that's more a, a sort of state of feeling that people identify with as like cumulative fatigue over time. Um, as for the, the energy substrate depletion, that's super, super, super rare. And especially in uh, a sport where there's not much reliance on, on glycogen, uh, it's mostly sort of creatine phosphate driven or phosphate phosphate creatine i suppose uh, it's not a huge issue and the amount of weight that we actually or oh, sorry the amount of energy that we actually go through lifting weights is really tiny uh, so if you look at any studies um, actually looking at how much energy it costs to do a weight session it's like tiny because mo- if you think about it it's very difficult right it induces a lot of fatigue so um from a from a subjective perspective it's really hard and you it burns and you get out of breath and everything but you're not actually spending that much time working Mm. compared to say you know running or rowing or something like that where you you're constantly working and there's no rest lifting weights especially in a strength sport it's actually you don't spend very much time actively engaged in lifting so you can generate quite a lot of um fatigue in terms of peripheral fatigue of that that feeling of um you know, burning and your muscles getting tired and that kind of stuff, uh, without really touching your stores of glycogen or your ATP stores too much, uh, and so yeah, that's a massively overrated aspect of of it. But I think there's also something to it because from what I've seen, you can. So we talked like on a micro level about how uh, the the calcium within a muscle is released and that can help the muscles. That causes the muscles to start contracting. Um, there is some research indicating that, from a like the the glycogen that's stored within a muscle that's really proximal to the muscle fibers themselves can start getting depleted during a session. So your overall you know, like muscle levels of glycogen could be really high. You mean the motor nerve itself? Sorry, in that instance.
2: Oh, the, the yeah. The glycogen nearest the nerve. Yes.
1: Yeah yeah, yeah. 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 That can be depleted, right? Um, and so. That can induce fatigue as well so like your overall glycogen level might be quite high but in the local the very local area around that uh that nerve where the muscle is um that can be sort of uh temporarily depleted and that can induce fatigue too so it is technically a glycogen depletion issue but it's not because your overall levels of glycogen are low and you need to be eating more carbohydrate does that make sense mm, it does so like I think the, the, like both of those issues are probably massive misconceptions and probably not what's leading to cumulative fatigue over time. Um, it's probably like CNS fatigue has probably got a lot more to do with muscle damage than, than anything from training from what I've seen in the, in the literature.
2: So I'd actually, because I have no idea about it, I wouldn't mind you expanding on that train of thinking. So why would muscle damage itself contribute to CNS fatigue? Uh, it's just what we see
1: in terms of that afferent signaling Uh, from what i've seen the one thing that reduces motor output from the central nervous system in the literature that's really consistent seems to be muscle damage uh, if we're looking at factors involved in weight training so the more muscle damage you tend to induce the lower the signal we get from the brain I'm not really sure why. I mm. think it's to do with that afferent signaling. So you have pain and, or maybe discomfort around that area. There's probably some other stuff involved as well. And that inhibits the amount of output we can get from the central nervous system going to the muscles and causing them to contract. Um, you know, So I've kind of been against the, the concept of trying to induce muscle damage or muscle soreness in training uh, for quite some time, because I think it's not really productive and not necessary to grow muscle, certainly not necessary to get stronger. um, But some of those really big sessions can not only induce um, fatigue from a psychological perspective, or uh, just the sheer amount of workload that you're doing perspective, but also if you're inducing a lot of muscle damage, it means your subsequent sessions may have lower CNS output, meaning that they're less productive as well. Um, So I think that's quite an interesting part that a lot of people don't really take into account because a lot of people want to feel sore after a training session and use it as a marker for good training. But it's probably
2: something that we want to avoid in most cases. I think if you train for long enough and hard enough that you just develop like a very healthy sense of boredom with the idea of being in the gym and being at all sore about it after, then you just naturally come to avoid muscle damage and your training productivity skyrockets. What do you think about that, Alex? (laughs) You've been very pensive. I feel like <laughs> you haven't said much because you're just waiting to just drop absolute knowledge bombs on this podcast.
0: I'm just trying to soak in the knowledge of Luke.
2: <laughs> <laughs> okay, so so to what degree then would you say that the fatigue we experience as lifters is like a homogenous phenomenon as opposed to one that might differ across the spectrum of intensities and volumes and stuff that we train in?
1: I think it's reasonably homogenous, but I think probably the main thing that's relevant for us is uh, the amount of aerobic demand. Um, So if there's something in the literature that's quite consistent in terms of generating fatigue, it's that the greater the aerobic demand and the amount of volume, I suppose, done uh, under aerobic demand, the more fatigue, cumulative fatigue, we tend to see over time so that would apply to both cardio but also lifting um and so if you're in your heavier like higher volume training phases and stuff like we, we tend to see higher uh, amounts of fatigue generated from that the total workload is going up but i think a lot of it has to do as well with the amount of aerobic demand um and w- we see that reflected in endurance training sports essentially so i think like that part um is certainly something to consider because that's going to be a un, like a, an individual factor that's going to contribute to cumulative fatigue, you know, as opposed to obviously lifting very heavy weights, and not having excessive aerobic demand. I think that actually, um, in those situations, you may experience less fatigue overall. Um, obviously, when you're close to like maximal lifts and all that sort of stuff, you do tend to feel a little bit beat down. And I think that's a, a really um, subjective thing too, because it's it's psychologically. Uh, fatiguing so to speak Mm. I guess we'll get onto that a little bit as
2: well but um, certainly aerobic demand is like a massive factor Um, so so I think that that is a finding that would probably surprise a lot of people to hear Yep. um, which is that in literature it's often demonstrated that higher volumes of training at lower intensities induce more fatigue than than very high intensities Um, can you just maybe describe a little bit of what the literature says about that yeah totally
1: Um, so I think the Put it this way. So if we have a a maximal isometric contraction or a maximal dynamic contraction, either way... Sorry, can
2: we just define isometric?
1: So isometric means the muscle's length is not changing. So you might push as hard as you can against a resistance and you're producing as much force as you possibly can, but it's not moving. Mm -hmm. And then dynamic would obviously be what we're more used to, like doing a one-RM squat or something like that. Uh, In either one of those cases, there is CNS fatigue that is induced, but it tends to disappear completely within half an hour. So when people say, oh, my CNS is fried like it's unlikely to have been from that particular session. Now, obviously there's fatigue there because if you ask them to reproduce that effort again, they can't do it, you know, say 24 hours later necessarily. Um, But when we uh, look at the accumulation of fatigue, then it starts to to go up when we have high training volumes, when we have longer duration exercise. Um, And so I think what's happening there is that there's a lot more going on in the peripheral space. Mm. In other words, we're getting more muscle damage, we're getting more reactive oxygen species being produced, which can interfere with the, um, the way the nervous system interacts with the muscle as well. So it can change those thresholds for when calcium is released and causes the muscle to actually contract. We have an accumulation of other metabolites, like some of the stuff we've mentioned, like inorganic phosphates and
2: things like that inorganic yeah we spoke about inorganic phosphate a
1: lot yeah we did we did mention that a few times um you know so we're having a bunch of other stuff that's happening peripherally when we have higher training volumes and so that tends to add up and accumulate to greater fatigue over time whereas the actual cns portion of it when you're lifting very heavy weights uh is certainly there but it tends to dissipate quite quickly
2: and so when um Sorry, Alex. Alex was... <laughs> guys, I wanted on the record that Alex was going to jump in. There was... yeah. I'm probably going to forget my question. There was Knowledge Agent Orange <laughs> right about to come out there. He was going to nuke us all with, um, with Knowledge. Um, no, sorry. When you when you said then that muscle damage um, appears to really predictably increase fatigue, yep. um, do you think it is because... So when, like when we have muscle damage, there's structural damage to the actual actual contractile proteins within the muscle and they yes. impair their ability to you know to cross bind and produce force is it that that's describing the inability to produce force or is there actually a measurable decrease in like motor output like if people do emg are they seeing reduced emg or are they seeing reduced force
1: yeah from what i've seen they're actually seeing reduced emg as
2: well uh
1: and so again i think that is probably to do with afferent signaling
2: right and sorry, to clarify, EMG is like, is a measurement is like an, how would you describe EMG? It's a measurement of how much electrical activity is, is occurring at the muscle, yep. which is some type of a proxy of how much of a nervous signal is going down the pathway to it.
1: Yeah. So the general idea is like, if we have a stronger nervous system signal to, from the nerve that's recruiting the muscles, then we get greater muscle contraction. So it's, it's not exactly one-to-one, but it, it's a really good proxy. Yeah. Alex, you had a question? Yeah, so you mentioned that you, we have more fatigue
0: when we train with higher volumes. Yep. Yet when powerlifters get closer and closer to competition, the volume drops, obviously. Mm. Yet that's the time where people report the most fatigue. Yep. Why do you think that is? Do you think that's like mental, psychological? Or do you think that's actually a thing?
1: Uh, I think it does have something to do with dose response from like a, a working set point of view. So like essentially what's happened is throughout a training block, you've accumulated fatigue over time. And so if you've done 12 weeks of hard training, you've induced a certain level of fatigue. Um, Let me back up a little bit. So over time, what we wanna do when we train, we provide a stimulus and that stimulus is making us better. Uh, so we're adapting to that stimulus and not now, if Alex writes your program, <laughs> not if you don't do your yeah, bicep you skip, curls. You girls, man. <laughs> Crucial. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and so what happens is you get better over time, but each of those workouts, each of those stimuli is also inducing fatigue. And that is over time going to add up. So over that training block of, say, 12 weeks, we're progressively getting better, we're getting stronger, but at the same time, fatigue is also accumulating. And so obviously, by the time you've gotten to the 10th, 11th or 12th week, you've got this history of training leading up to that. Um, And then on top of that, I do think there is stuff like, uh, you know, just the the psychological stress of lifting heavy for some people is is great. Um, The upcoming competition or testing day or whatever it is is also going to weigh on their mind. Uh, Some people, I do think, find that intensity is subjectively harder than lower-intensity, higher-volume stuff. Huge disagree from me, but yeah. Yeah I, think, yeah, I think it's all a matter of perspective. I think when you do your high-volume training phases, you're like, fuck, this is hard. And then when you do your heavier stuff, you're like, fuck, this is hard. So whatever. Exactly. <laughs> so, so like, I think there's a combination of factors there, but I think it's mostly got to do with the fact that you've got accumulated fatigue by the end of that time. And then the other thing is just that if, you, if you're performing hard sets... Whether they're high volume, like high rep or low rep, that's gonna induce a lot of fatigue if you're getting close to failure. So, even if you're doing heavy threes or something, and you've only got one or two reps left um, in a set, like that's gonna be probably similarly fatiguing uh, to a point, um, unless you're, you know, like the, it's highly aerobic. So, like if you're doing, you know, 20 rep sets, I would expect that to be more fatiguing, 20 rep sets to failure versus like five rep sets to failure. Um, I would expect the 20 rep sets to be much more fatiguing. But if there, is there much of a difference between uh, like a set of eight and a set of four or something? I'm not sure that there's a massive difference okay. there in terms of how much fatigue is being generated. So you think it's just mostly the prior weeks of training catching up to you? I think it's probably mostly to
2: do with that. Yep. Okay. Well, I'm going to spitball Yep. because that's why we started this podcast. To put man. out, <laughs> yeah, to put out really dubious facts. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so something that is demonstrated across definitely the squat and bench press, and I have no idea in the deadlift, but stands to reason would be the case, um, is that across the spectrum of intensities, the the recruitment patterns of all the muscles that contribute to the move um, the movement don't increase proportionally. Mm. So, in the case of say the squat. Most people get to peak quad activity. It's not far above 50%, I yep. think. Yep. And likewise in the bench press, I think pec activity tops out or there was a study where pec activity among men topped out at like 70%. Weirdly for women, it just kept going up the whole time, um, which might describe something. I don't know. But point is like the prime movers actually hit peak recruitment reasonably early. Yep. And that might be part of why doing some relatively sub-maximal training on those lifts for hypertrophy can work really well. But what tends to happen as you get past those, those intensity um, thresholds where they've peaked is that a lot of the supporting musculature have to pick up the slack. And so in the case of the bench press, front delt and tricep activation do continue to increase nearly linearly all the way up to 100%. And so possibly this is where the spitballing comes in. So mm. up until now, that's factual. From here on in, it's very possibly <laughs> not factual. Possibly as well, what happens as you start to train with greater relative intensities is because the because the supporting muscles are also doing more work. Is it's not really it's not really comparable just on a one one to one set to set basis how much muscular work you're doing. Yeah. So if you do like a hard set at sixty or seventy percent, for most of that hard set, you've probably had your prime movers doing most of the work and the secondary muscles doing just enough to keep up. But once you're training in the 80, 85, 90% range, it's like from the get-go, every muscle involved is getting heavily taxed. And so squats go from being just a tough quad exercise where your back does a little bit of work and your glutes do some work to being like really hard on quads, really hard on your back, really hard on your glutes. And that's, it's proportionally more fatiguing because more muscles are actually being truly trained and fatigued at that intensity. I don't know if you guys think that holds water, but just subjectively, do you experience those same things? Yeah, I agree with that. Like when you deadlift, deadlifting for you like 180 200 is not really much work on your back right deadlifting 240 260 terrible terrible <laughs> <laughs> um, and i think that's the case for me as well as like i can do squats for days at, yeah 170 180 kilos but over 200 my upper back just starts to get absolutely torched and given that luke has already said as well that part of that like part of that feeling of just subjective global fatigue you get might come from efferent signaling from those muscles. If suddenly it's not just my quads that are sending those signals, it's like my whole body is sending an efferent signal saying, well, this fucking stinks. <laughs> yeah. then, then probably that subjective experience of fatigue is going to go up. Yep. Anyway, that's something that's been bumping around in my mind. I just wanted to... Put
1: yeah, it right. it's interesting. I, th- I think there's also something like... So something that I read that I think Chris Beardsley wrote about was like how with single joint exercises, for example, you're generating more peripheral fatigue. And so what's happening is the muscles are exposed to a higher level of intracellular calcium mm-hmm. uh, at that time, and that induces more muscle damage. And as a result, you end up with more central fatigue, even though the movements themselves that you're doing are not centrally fatig- th- thought of as centrally fatiguing themselves, right? Right. Um, which I thought is quite an interesting, uh,
2: take on things. So what you're describing is why I get so lethargic and bored when I do bicep curls. (laughs) Perhaps. Perhaps. Should I put them first then? Yeah, well, I think we're actually going to talk about (laughs) exercise order a little bit, but if you actually wanted me to try, put them before my deadlifts. (laughs) Imagine that bicep tearing. Yeah, that'd be brilliant. (laughs) Yeah. Really good. Double underhand (laughs) (laughs) deadlifts Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah sorry you were saying so like there's more intracellular calcium and so they can be more centrally fatiguing than yeah compound exercises yeah 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 totally was yeah. there a follow-up to that or
1: no it's not really no oh, okay. i just thought it was an interesting idea to, like i think it's kind of along the lines of what you're saying as well because if you're using a lighter load and you're maximally activating say the quads really early in the, in the squat mm-hmm. and you're doing higher reps with that and then the quads are getting super fatigued or gener- like they're under tension for a long amount of time lots of intracellular calcium then you're generating quite a lot of central fatigue from that over a longer period of time because of the muscle damage right so that makes sense whereas yeah. if you're lifting a heavier load and you're then getting a greater contribution from those other, other muscle groups as well um, then potentially that load is, I suppose, spread out over more of the the muscles involved in the joint actions, Yeah. which may lead to slightly less muscle damage in, a, in an isolated spot. But still of a comparable signaling of yeah. how you're tired. Yeah, exactly. Well, that makes a lot of sense.
2: Yeah. Um, I actually forget where we were up to on the questions. because oh, oh, yeah. So we, we actually kind of have started talking about this, which was how the nature of the training stimulus um Affects the source of fatigue. And then we mentioned some contextual factors. Um, so maybe maybe what might be better to talk about then are some of these psychological contributors to fatigue. Yep. Because you've a few times mentioned that, you know, perhaps we just have a psychological aversion to pushing really hard. Yep. Um, what does the literature say about that? Well, I think there's a...
1: So I haven't looked too much into... Um... A lot of psychology research surrounding exercise performance but there's certainly a massive element of perception um, so we know that those afferent signaling pathways back to the brain are involved in sensory perception for example and so like let's say it just feels like a muscle's burning a lot uh, your your perception of fatigue goes up with that um, and so this is where uh, rpe as it's sort of originally used I suppose as like a really subjective rating of how difficult something was can come into play because the more you perceive something to be uh, fatiguing the more likely it is that you are unable to send out a powerful signal to the muscles from the central nervous system Um, and obviously that's classified as fatigue that way Um, whereas something like psychological arousal maybe you may be able to perform Uh, better even though your your sort of physical state is more or less the same simply because you're getting more output from the central nervous system because you're psychologically aroused in that state Uh, so i think there's definitely something to be said for that the problem is obviously if you're and you've probably had trainees like this before they get really like they get really up for training they really psych themselves up they go super hard every time and then of course you're accumulating more volume you're doing more you're getting more muscle damage all that sort of stuff and it means that cumulatively cumulatively over time Potentially accruing a lot more fatigue than it is than you'd really want them to. Like I've got a few people who just kind of push, like a little, like one rep closer to failure than maybe I really want them to, and it means that overall I have to program less volume for them because they just get fatigued too quickly um, throughout a training cycle. Um, so I think the psychological state and the the personality traits and sort of proclivities of the lifter can really come into play there and can kind of throw this whole thing on its head mm. um, because we can talk about numbers and like this really set paradigm but then you've got like uh, when someone's in the gym and they think something's an rpe8 and you're like dude you could not have done another another rep there you know classic (laughs) Uh, Classic instagram powerlifting yeah yeah exactly so it's that's quite an interesting aspect to it that's really dynamic i think So
0: how do you manage your lifters who have that propensity to sort of overshoot and over up and stuff? Like, is it a certain number of weeks you want them to do it or is it a certain number of sessions per week or a certain number of sets per week or like, how do you go about that? Yeah,
1: it's hard. I think like there's a few things you could do. Um, from a coaching perspective, you can obviously try and educate them on like, hey, this is not the time to push hard now, but towards the end of the phase, that's when we want to push hard. In my experience, that isn't super successful with the physique type people that I see mm. um, because they kind of feel like they need to push themselves into the ground to get a result and to grow muscle. Whereas I think with powerlifting or strength sport athletes, they kind of want to see the result on the platform at the end of the day. And so if you say, look, you're doing too much now, and it means you're not going to be able to lift like your max in four weeks time, then they might go, oh, okay, i like, I'll follow the plan a bit better. Whereas with a bodybuilder, or a physique athlete, it's not so obvious. Um, so I think that's kind of a tough thing, um, which means that you just kind of have to program around it. It may mean that I program easier, like, proper deload weeks earlier, it may mean that I overall adjust the training volume knowing that they're gonna push um, sets closer to failure. And so instead of giving them, you know, like 18 sets a week on a body part, I might program 16 sets a week on a body part knowing that they're probably gonna go closer to failure than I want them to. Um, But you can also just target different days or lifts or something that you do want them to go ham on and go, right, this is your, your time to shine. And sometimes I do that, I call it a challenge set. And so I'll literally, sort of challenge them like okay you can go ham on this with drop setting like go for it um but the other stuff then like that's not a challenge that you're not allowed to do it on those ones so yeah i've seen a few different methods that
0: challenge set something that i do like all a push set yeah cool um and i only have that for like a three or four week period before I deload and then like yeah a new phase yeah and then i've also seen coaches who use rpe they'll drop the rpe by one point mm-hmm. for those lifters who like always overshoot which was me when i was yeah. doing up and, um, the other way that I've uh, programmed around this is made the easier days even easier than I would yep, totally. To sort of create that contrast. Yeah. That.
1: I think you, I think you've got to just like kind of play around with what the perception is from the client's perspective. Cause obviously as coaches, you're looking at like tons of different people and trying to make a unified system across that works for all of them. But mm-hmm. from their perspective, they've only sort of seen the program from you, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's, they don't have that ability to compare about what you're trying to do. Um, but yeah, it can be pretty
2: tough, I find. It's actually a, a really difficult thing. Yeah, something I've done with some success is exactly like what Alex said with the push set is I send my clients programs in three to four week blocks normally and often it'll be only in the final week. Yep. They might have like say it's a top set of three for their squat that's reasonably sub-maximal across the first two or three weeks of the program. Then the final one will say like one set of two to five at a heavier load than all of their prior top sets of three. And so you, you can basically frame it as like a chance to do quality, some maximal work, and then let loose on that one yeah. one week. And then from there you can subjectively assess how tired are they, how much of a load do they need. Yep. Whereas, you know, if I gave them a set of three to five at RPE eight in week one, they'd just do five at ten. Yeah, <laughs> then yeah. Then we're exactly where you know, exactly where we should be in week four and week one.
1: Yeah, I think it also depends on like where where that's happening in the workout. If I have someone on the very first exercise go really hard and push themselves close to failure and induce a lot of acute fatigue earlier in the session. It's like the the rest of the session, they're going to be doing lower volume than what I need them to be doing. Mm. So sometimes it's a case of like, okay, cool. Like these are the exercises you want to really push yourself on, whether that's bicep curls or whatever, because a lot of my physique people want to do that. Um, Weird. Yeah, <laughs> it's funny that. Yeah. Um, and so like, I'm, ha- I'm kind of a lot happier for them if it's the last like two or three exercises for them to push themselves and go to failure on that than to, like, destroy themselves on their first set of bench press. And now, like, their overall training volume is going to be low for the rest of the session. Um,
2: We initially started this conversation talking about psychological factors that contribute to fatigue. Yeah. And just because I had this lecturer at uni, right, he was a fascinating guy, he was really good fun. And he ended up being in... You remember that sugar film? Yeah. Yeah. And you know they had the scientist guy who... um, who, you know, wore the, wore the white lab coat And sort of spoke about how sugar sucks Yeah, well, I and didn't watch it See, I don't watch these, these stupid films But I'm aware of it. it Okay, well, he was that guy <laughs> and, um, and his PhD was actually in biochemistry he was, a, he was a really interesting guy It was good fun And he loved the idea of a central governor of fatigue Right um, And so, guys, Steve, um, Stephen Noakes? I think so uh, Yeah, what is his name? Steve Noakes, I think Yep um, so, Noakes was was originally a very forward thinking um, exercise scientist who then went a bit bonkers on like really low carb dieting. Yep. Um, but he he was the first person to coin this idea of um, of a central governor of fatigue. And basically, his the premise is that your body your body defends against a eternally fatigued state because it's actually a threat to survival if you truly were to deplete all of your AP, ATP. Or yeah, you were to truly, truly run yourself into the ground, and so prior to you getting to that point, you have defence mechanisms, mm-hmm. and and he used he used sort of that logical thinking to describe a whole bunch of things that he saw in sport. So one classic phenomenon is pacing in marathons, where people sustain supposedly the highest speed that they can for you know forty-one and a half kilometers, and then the final four to five hundred meters, they somehow pick up pace. Despite often having bonked and being tired because the finish line is in sight, yep. and you know if that if they were truly truly fatigued and had nothing left to give, they wouldn't be able to do that. And so he says there must be some psychological, um, some psychological barrier to ultimate performance, which he termed the central governor. That's a simplistic explanation, but there's a whole bunch of experimental evidence that at least on surface level seems to give some support to that idea. So one that I found really interesting was a deception trial they did in cyclists where they gave them like a half an hour time trial, recorded their performance, and then they got them to race against the ghost of their prior performance like an hour later or something, so or half an hour later. So presumably still under fatigue. Mm. Um, but what they did was they actually sped up the ghost 5% or something. So they tricked them into thinking that their prior time trial had been faster than they were, and they raced against it, and everybody or the majority of people... Did better under fatigue than they had fresh yeah. because they were deceived about their prior performance right? Um, but the the other one which is one of my absolute favourite experiments of all time, it was called the shot and shout experiment, I'm not sure what its formal title is and it's by a guy I think it's like Ito or something, I think he was Japanese and what they did was they got people on a um, on like an arm curl machine, I can't remember if it was isometric or not but it doesn't matter point is every minute for 15 minutes these people had to do a maximum bicep curl contraction against this machine right but unbeknownst to them there'd be a researcher standing behind them and at random intervals through the 15 minutes they would fire a blank directly <laughs> behind their head I don't know how they got <laughs> ethics, ethics <laughs> approved for it so they're literally shooting a gun behind these people's heads right and, and so they marked the force output across these 15 minutes and you would see like a pretty steady decrease which you'd expect with fatigue but then in the random ones Where they like Shot a gun The force would jump Right back up To or above yep. Minute one Right And they were saying That you know With this psychological Emergency state People access as a hidden Reserve of energy That they otherwise Didn't have And the best thing About this experiment Is when you read it There's other parts In the methods Where they tried Giving people drugs They tried get, Like seriously They gave them Like amphetamines Why They got them dark? drunk This is in like The 40s or 50s It's <laughs> awesome I'll send you the paper But they gave them drugs They gave them Like they got them drunk and they hypnotised them. So they tried all this shit to, to see um, to see if there were psychological barriers to fatigue. And It's phenomenal. It's really, really funny. But they did find that yeah, shooting a gun behind people behind people's heads restored their restored their force production capabilities. And so I think. Like tying that in some practical sense <laughs> to training, <laughs> because I've tried bringing a gun into work, yeah, and so far it's been like, a big so no-go. no go, yeah. no. Um, and the problem's finding a place to shoot it. Really, <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think I could, I could almost do it, but there's just nowhere you can point a gun in a gym That's without getting in someone's way. You've got clients. Hmm. <laughs> well, just <laughs> just shoot it at the client. Yeah, maybe. Um, but tying it in a practical sense into training, I think part of part of why like hyper arousal and possibly and or certainly competition arousal can seem to get a little bit more out of people is because it in some way seems to wash away the effects of fatigue itself and likewise over the course of training when you do have you know some psychological some psychological contributors to fatigue so whether it's just weariness being sick of going to the gym you know tiredness from work all those things that would realistically contribute to poor performance they also probably do have a masking effect of your true capabilities.
1: Yeah, I think there's a lot like of ritual and placebo. Like, you know, there's those studies where they give people green-coloured drinks and they'll tell them, hey, this is going to, it's just green dye, and they'll say, either it's going to improve your performance or it's not going to do anything or we're not sure what it's going to do. And you tend to find that people perform much better on a 200-metre sprint when they're given the green drink and told this is going to improve your performance so um you know whether that like so you know we've mentioned before you don't really deplete much glycogen during a training session but maybe having um you know like a snack before training that is high carbohydrate you get that taste of glucose like which there's other um studies which were admittedly endurance based but you know with the glucose swishing in the mouth sort of thing it improves uh time to fatigue you know there's things like that that can get you in a psychological state that can then improve your training um, you know, it could be having like an energy drink or whatever it is. It might not even have theoretically enough caffeine to actually do anything. But since you've had it, you get a, a kick out of it and improve. So I think there's definitely something to be said about all of that sort of stuff too.
2: Yeah. And I think just, again, from a purely practical perspective is when we go to lift weights, we're not electrocuting our muscles to force them to contract. You actually have to voluntarily contract. Yeah. Them. So yeah. if you do not want to voluntarily contract your muscles... You don't contract them That's true What do you think of that Alex? You're in the wrong sport If you don't want to contract your muscles Yeah <laughs> That's <laughs> true Is there a sport Where you can't contract a single muscle? Chess is technically like a mind sport But you do still have to move you the pieces You still move, mm. to move the pieces Or do you say it? You can probably say like Knight to two. C5 or whatever I was going to say E5 That's weird We're on a similar wavelength today Two letters off <laughs> Alright <laughs> <Yeah>. Guys <laughs> we're going to have A very quick break Quick game of chess And we'll be right back with more <laughs>
0: Welcome back to Weekly Weights. Whoa, I did that <laughs> earlier. <laughs> okay, in. <Diane. laughs> so we've spoken quite a little bit about defining tech, uh, defining fatigue and different types of fatigue and stuff. Now we're going to go into the fatigue on a timeline uh, for training. So let's start with uh,
1: within a set. So what factors contribute to fatigue within a set? So within the set, we've got that accumulation of uh, metabolites in the muscle. We've got a little bit of local um uh fuel source depletion uh and so those are definitely contributing to fatigue and then you get that signaling from the periphery back to the nervous system that's going to slowly decrease the or steadily decrease the cns output back to the muscle so um there's definitely cns fatigue that develops throughout there as well as peripheral fatigue that cns fatigue is going to dissipate pretty quickly the peripheral fatigue may hang around a bit longer and uh that's, I suppose that's happening just within the set. Um, if we kind of think about what's going to happen then for multiple sets or as the workout goes on, because that peripheral fatigue is increasing, we're also going to get a concurrent increase in CNS fatigue. So we're going to, you know, throughout the workout as it goes on, as we do more work, we're going to see that the ability for the central nervous system to send a signal to the muscles and make them contract is also going to decrease so that has implications for how we set up our training obviously um and typically that's why we want to have stuff that requires more skill or heavier loads or anything like that earlier on in the workout um because we're just going to be unable to produce as much force and and train as hard as the workout goes on um so that's essentially what's happening throughout the
2: the training session so um tangent yes i feel like we got a good 30 seconds there Right, and now we can abandon ship and just talk about random stuff. <laughs> um, so, so one of the arguments against doing really, really high volumes for one muscle group within a session, yep. Or phrased another way, one of the advantages of splitting weekly volume across multiple sessions is that you don't get the impairment of force production from fatigue. Um, how much do you think that matters? Um, that matters just on a like on a practical basis.
1: I think it matters to some extent because I think that you're more liable to induce muscle damage if you're doing tons of volume in one go on a on a muscle. So let's take an example of like let's say you're doing, I don't know, like you want to do sixteen weekly sets and you're doing sixteen sets on your on your legs in one session or something like that. It's quite a lot, right? Mm-hmm. The quality of those sets is definitely going to go down. So from a a skill execution perspective, that's going to go down because you're just unable to recruit the muscles the way you want them to. Um, So that's a factor. And the other thing is that because you're exposing those muscles to so much stress, and again, um, there's a lot of metabolites being accumulated. There's a lot of um, calcium release. We're going to get higher amounts of muscle damage as that workout goes on too, which means more muscle damage. And that has two sort of negative consequences. The first one is like we said, you're you're getting that accumulation then of CNS fatigue as a result of the muscle damage. But also the more muscle damage you induce, um, you have to synthesize protein to repair that muscle damage. Mm. And so past a certain point, you're not necessarily stimulating more muscle protein synthesis from the workout. It might have sort of capped off maybe at about, I don't know, 10 sets to pull a figure out out of my ass. And then the additional six sets that you're doing are not really contributing much more to muscle protein synthesis, but they are contributing to fatigue and they are contributing to more muscle damage, which you have to overcome before you can grow any more muscle. So I think that's definitely an argument when you're doing higher volumes to try and split that up as much as you can. Probably two sessions is fine because I don't really see many people doing much like so much volume that they need to split it into three or four sessions. Um, but I think that's probably a really good argument for splitting up training volume. Um, because, you know, if your goal is building muscle, then it makes sense from like that muscle print And this is perspective. If you're trying to get better at a sport or a lift, then the skill execution perspective and the ability to produce force repeatedly perspective also comes into play as well.
2: So I preempted your answer mm-hmm. incorrectly. Yep. Um, like as in I thought you would say as you said, but for different reasons. And you you did mention it towards the end though, which is that as you as you accumulate fatigue, the actual force production per yeah. rep goes down as well. Um, and given that tension is like the big signal for muscle growth, that's really important. But for strength, that's really important as well, right? Because yeah. strength is the ability to produce forces. Um, I, yeah. So just to kind of riff on that a little bit, like I
1: think the the amount of mechanical tension that you're producing for the muscle. I'm not too worried about like the peak amount of load we can lift or, or whatever um, for muscle growth because I feel that if as long as you're going close enough to failure, you're producing as much tension as you possibly can from the fibers anyway. Mm. Um, but for strength, it's really important that obviously that force production stays high because that's what you're practicing. That's what you want to try and do as often as you can
2: with really high uh, force production. Well, that was actually... That was the next part of my question which is right. yeah so if we can maintain higher levels of force production across a given amount of volume, is there a, is there a rational basis to think that that might be beneficial for strength? And you think the answer is likely yes
1: I'd say probably yeah okay
2: um, Well that brings us to the next part of our timeline though which is which is what are the contributors to fatigue between sessions so why isn't it that we could? why couldn't we just do a hard set once an hour? For an entire week mm-hmm. And just do more high high quality sets And be stronger Yeah so there's definitely a timeline With which
1: fatigue dissipates So you kind of want to Try and block it together if you can um, So that we can induce the stimulus We can uh, allow the adaptations to take place And then we can allow that fatigue to dissipate As much as we can Before we then perform the next session um, So I think that Accumulation of fatigue over time is an important aspect. And I'm not sure that like the exact spacing of the workouts is particularly important, provided you're not overlapping muscle groups too much. Cause like your main indicator is like, can I still perform the way I should like, should I, can I, you might be completely quote unquote recovered within 24 hours, Enough to perform a session of the same sort of caliber again. Um, and you're still going to have this kind of background effect of fatigue that is accumulating over time, right? So I'm not sure that you necessarily are like trying to space workouts out too far apart necessarily. Um, I think you could still do like, uh, you know, you could split the sessions up like morning and evening even if you wanted to and just kind of do that same amount of training volume. I, I don't think there'd be a, a reasonably different amount of fatigue necessarily so uh i think what's happening in between is essentially you just get this background accumulation of fatigue that's happening over time um and it's it's really just a function of how much work you do like that's that's the i think that's the biggest takeaway is like the amount of hard work you do uh
2: is directly proportional to how much fatigue you're going to generate and so that accumulated fatigue is that just is that just build up of stuff in the muscles or is that wear and tear to other tissues what what other things might be sending a signal to our brain to say we're fatigued now? I
1: think it's it's all of that stuff. Um, I, I still think that it's mostly to do with the, as far as we know anyway in the research, I think it's mostly to do with things like muscle damage and substrate depletion and met- metabolite accumulation that's then signaling back to the nervous system. Um, and then obviously we have outside factors like... Uh, psychological state and I think we can also probably touch a little bit at this point on things like nutrition and sleep and all those factors that are going to come into recovery but fundamentally those are all a big part of the recovery and fatigue picture but at the end of the day I don't think there's an amount of sleep or like protein you can eat or supplements you can take that can outpace the amount of fatigue that you generate from training so I think like the amount of fatigue generated from training has to be your primary method of managing fatigue um, and then beyond that, you can start to look at like, okay, what are my outside stress levels? What's my sleep like? Um, and all of those external factors too. So that's my sort of take on it. Like that stuff all matters, but definitely going to just manage your actual training first. So you can't out-recover a shit program? Yeah, that's pretty much. I think like there's this weird mantra that went through bodybuilding and it was like, you know, you're not, you can't overtrain. You can only under-recover, which is really dumb because there's obviously a limit to how much you can recover. Uh, like you can't sleep more than a certain amount of time. You can't. You can't
2: simply eat ten thousand calories and recover forever. You know what I mean? Um, although it might be fun to try.
1: Yeah, but, but it's kind of <laughs>
2: it's kind of dumb because sorry, it's just like it's logically totally inconsistent. It's like saying you can't oversleep. You can only understay up or something. Yeah, yeah, I'm exactly. Like, there's twenty four hours in a day. Like one way or another, like <laughs> you're <laughs> either in bed or you're awake. You know? <laughs> yeah, the, yeah. The balance matters.
1: No, exactly. But I think there's still that weird like pervasive concept of like i can just do more work in the gym and i can get results so much faster as long as i take enough supplements eat enough vegetables have enough protein um get enough massages and stuff and the the reality is that like that stuff aside from maybe sleep and like if your nutrition is adequate there's not a lot that's going to affect recovery Mm. uh it's really going to be managing training load and, and intensity I can speak from anecdote. I sleep more than anyone (laughs) and I still get fatigued
0: from
2: training. Well, maybe you sleep because you're fatigued. Mm. There we go. Um, But Actually, I think that that's a really interesting point generally because on the one hand, you have people who, like you said, think basically can't overtrain, can only under recover and the training method then becomes just throw as much shit against the wall as you can and see what sticks, just train the fucking house down and it's almost like through redundancy you ensure sufficiency. Like, you yeah, do yeah. so much that you have to adapt. And then there's other people, and I probably fall into this camp almost to too, too great of a degree sometime, who, like, emphasize quality such that they almost avoid just letting you get a bit tired because it's it's a reality that if you do enough training to get better, you're just going to get tired and then you pay your dues by having a deload or, you know, or having an easier week of training or something to recover yeah. down the track. But there, there has to be some type of a middle ground, right? Where you just acknowledge that training gets you fatigued in order to get you better. And you just balance the amount of training and fatigue you have chronically to ensure you're getting better.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree with that. Um, like, it's normal to feel tired. You should feel tired at times with training. You should almost feel like you've been ground into dust sometimes with training. But there should be a plan to deal with that. It shouldn't just be like, that's your horizon. Mm. And that's just going to keep stretching into forever until you literally break and are forced to take some time off. Uh, there should be some smart management of that. Um, you should expect that this week I'm going to probably feel really tired and then the following week maybe I'm going to have a deload or an easier week or something.
2: Well, I think that, that that takes us really nicely into our next question, which was, is fatigue like a necessary precondition of effective training?
1: Yeah, I think so. Like to to simply induce the adaptations you need to provide a stimulus, fatigue is inherent with that. You know, it's like, um is stress a necessary part of life like yeah you need to be challenged sometimes um it just shouldn't accumulate to the point where it actually stifles your ability to continue to train and get better
2: so if we think about powerlifters because our audience has some people who are very recreational lifters yep you know and some people who have aspirations to be like the best in australia or the best in the world um actually I don't know if anybody that good gives a shit (laughs) Um, but no but like we do we have this spectrum of people right Um, so for somebody whose training is reasonably minimalist so say that you do two or three hard sessions a week of training with the expectation of getting better how much fatigue would be do you think they should typically expect you know at the end of a session and across a week and then what would be the other end of the productive extreme? So people who are really training hard 10 or 12 hours a week plus.
1: Well, I think it depends on, on what level you're at as well. You know, So individually, some people are going to be able to tolerate more fatigue and it also comes with training age. You know, The more training you do and the more you adapt to that stress, um, potentially the more resistant you're going to become to the effects of fatigue up to a point. Obviously, you don't just keep getting better and better. Um, so I think it really depends on training age and, and where you're at with that. Uh, certainly I think with two or three sessions a week there's probably not a whole heap of fatigue that you're going to be generating that would require like a deload every three weeks or something like that Um, which is what some people do 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 Uh, but I also think that It's not like you have a little fatigue calculator and you go, okay, I've hit 970 units of fatigue and I'm not supposed to go over 1,000. You know what I mean? It's just one of these things that's dynamic and it's a little bit up in the air. So I think sometimes what can occur is that people aren't proactive enough in deloading. And personally, I would rather, for myself, uh, I would rather deload and come into the gym fresh and hit another great training cycle than get to a point where like, all of my joints are hurting and I'm in a bad mood and I can't sleep properly um, because I've just kept training for like eight weeks on end, pushing myself super hard. I would rather be proactive and just deload and have set up another productive training week. So that's kind of my take. I think other people probably have a different take where they might push themselves to the point where they feel like they need to deload and then back off. So um, you know, some people might do uh, very, very much a, a planned sort of thing where they go, right, every four weeks, I'm going to deload. Um, and then because they expect that their training is going to be quite hard or they might plan every six weeks if it's not going to be quite as hard. And then there are other people who are probably more advanced and can figure out when they're, when they're accruing too much fatigue and they'll just do it as needed. Mm. Uh, I think either approach can work, but certainly for people who are more recreational, that's probably not the best approach
2: because you're probably not that good at recognizing when you're truly fatigued. I have a question for Alex. Um, so when you do have people who are who are... Very strong trainees who are training very hard. So, like pulling a couple of names out of the hat. So, say Nick Walters and you know Potsy, both strong guys who are going to be working with the process PLTM no. that launches next Thursday. Next Thursday. No trademark. Fuck um, yeah, I'm going to well, trademark yeah. it. Sucked so- <laughs> in, <laughs> <laughs> guys. Yeah, trademark the process. <laughs> That'd be the best. Um, but okay, so you got a couple of guys who are like you know wilting in the mid 400s, like strong dudes, right? Um, And if they train really hard for 6 or 8 or 10 weeks at a time, they're going to accumulate some fatigue. And somewhere across there, their peak performance will start coming down. So what they might be able to hit for 3 completely fresh in a competition movement might drop by 2 or 5 or 10%. As a coach, how much suppression of peak performance do you think is permissible to see across a training block before you say this person's accumulated too much fatigue? Or do you not worry about that? Um... I don't ever push them to the point where it's actually
0: noticeable to like more of like a 5% degree. Yeah. So mm-hmm. like I, especially with the guys who are stronger, I tend to keep them within their little band of like stuff that they need to do, volume they need to do, intensity they need to do. Yeah. And then like I will deload them a little bit earlier than I think they need right. just so that I don't get to that
2: point. Hmm. Well, so Luke, on a theoretical basis, it, like if somebody did have, you know, cause it's it's often seen for powerlifters in tapering that they'll get you know two to four percent improvements in performance yep which is like it's marginal but it's enough to really matter on the platform sure um do you think that having yeah a, say five percent suppression in performance in training is meaningful in terms of like actually doing productive strength training or do you think that's the type of thing we just take an our stride and then taper when it's time um I, it's probably a bit individual i would say
1: because I, i'm sure you guys have some people who show up on the platform and like can consistently after a de-load, maybe produce five percent more than what they lifted in the gym yeah probably um, but there's probably going to be other people who don't see quite as much of a of an increase they might get one or two percent above or something like that so i think that's a little bit individual but i th- i personally think five percent is pretty reasonable for mm-hmm. a strength athlete um because because you've, you've obviously got you've got fatigue but then you've also got the psychological arousal of the day and all that sort of stuff to take into account as well um you know so i think that can overcome a little bit of fatigue not that you'd necessarily want it to but um you certainly learn i think when you're doing that often enough you know how to taper well and how to dissipate that fatigue well before a comp and that's a little bit individual but i certainly don't think that you know cutting off maybe five percent of performance
2: is necessarily going to result in like a, a bad training phase or something like that yeah I think my my general thoughts just because nobody's bothered asking me yet yeah, don't care <laughs> <laughs> I'll wrap it up there then um, no my general thoughts are that accumulating a bit of fatigue across training is normal for all the reasons that Lucas said and that if you have people doing like Alex said just lots of work in that kind of productive bandwidth there's almost a bit of redundancy like if yeah. if you're doing lots of work in the 75 to 85 percent range and you're chewing through it and you know, you're know you doing sets of four where perfectly fresh, you might be doing sets of six, you're still doing enough work to get stronger. Yes, yeah. And you're still producing high forces. Like it's enough to induce adaptation. And like Luke said, you need to be able to realize that adaptation on the platform. And so knowing you know, what types of responses you get from clients from a tape is really important. But then when I actually plan for competition, I, I look at their performance in their heaviest or best indicator sessions leading into comp and make my projections based on that only plus a little bit. So I I never say, oh, you know, this person squatted 150 kilos in their heaviest squat prior to the competition. They'll probably squat 170 at comp because that's not reasonable. Mm. But I might say, oh, they squatted 150. It looks like they had about 153 or four then, and they were really tired. Maybe fresh, they'll do 155. You know, so I, so I like really, I really like reduce my expectations a little bit. Yep. But I still do take into account that they are fatigued at the time of those performances. You think that's reasonable?
0: Yeah, absolutely. That's but right. also,
2: like on the day, and in particular
0: with the new one kilo increment rule, mm. we have the choice to do whatever they're capable of on the day. So the training mm. isn't super important once you get onto the platform anyway. Mm. Mm. Sure. Because mm. your best indicator of how fatigued someone is on the day is how they're performing
2: that day. Of course So sure, yeah. you make the call on the day yeah, But absolutely. you do still have to come into the day With some type of a framework yeah. That says like you know, Yeah reasonable. you need some
0: sort of plan But that's going to differ by You know Three or four kilos up or down Which you can adjust As your attempts go
2: hmm. So Luke You said um, You said that Fatigue isn't something That you can necessarily have Like a metric To calculate There's not units of fatigue yep. But are there practices That people can use To monitor how much fatigue They might be experiencing
1: Yeah, so I really like um, the way that I listened to James Hoffman, who Mm -hmm. is from Renaissance, uh, talk about this before. And I really like the concept of uh, leading versus lagging indicators, um, meaning that leading or concurrent indicators are stuff that's happening now or happening early as an indicator of fatigue. And the lagging ones are like, you're already fatigued now. It's a lagging indicator. It's kind of too late. Um, And I think... A lot of the things that people look out for when they're looking to see if they're getting fatigued or not are lagging indicators and it's kind of like too late, um, which is obviously not ideal. So some of the leading stuff is, uh, I think some of those things we've spoken about, like uh, the day-to-day stuff that that you should be doing alongside your training, like adequate nutrition, adequate sleep. Um, things like your day-to-day stresses at work, stuff like that. Those are all indicators you can take in. And that's all stuff I track with clients of mine. So I ask them what their physical activity is like. I know what job they work. If it's a physical job, for example, I can take that into account. If it's a, um, a stressful job, then I can take that into account. Uh, obviously also know what their nutrition is going to be like. I know how much sleep they're getting, all that sort of stuff. And you can take all of that into account when you're like just planning week by week with training, um, The other stuff you can look at in the gym is things like RPE, performance. Um, If you're the type of person who likes looking at lifting velocity, you can look at that. And we're just looking for deviations from typical performance and that there's no like rule of like this amount, you know, less, you're you're now too fatigued or not. I think it's more just like, how does this normally feel for this person? Uh, Or how does this normally look for this person? And is it any different? So those are kind of the main ones that we want to keep our eye on when trying to think about fatigue and then that's all in the context of your actual training plan as well obviously um the stuff that's lagging that a lot of people focus on a little bit too much are uh, and what's quite topical at the moment is things like hrv if your hrv is getting is like seriously out of whack
2: so that's heart rate variability, heart rate variability.
1: so like ideally what you want is should i explain it yeah sure okay so, I've got a
2: heart fluttering right now. I'm not sure if it's because I'm fatigued <laughs> or because you just look good. Oh, thank
1: you. Yeah. I, so, okay. So there's two branches of the nervous system. There's the sympathetic, which is the stress fight or flight one. And then there's rest and digest, which I kind of hate this, but it's fine.
2: People understand it. Parasympathetic. So At uni, they taught us point and shoot. Point and shoot? Yeah, because apparently oh. parasympathetic, apparently you have a really high parasympathetic tone if you have an erection which seems weird but like i guess i've never run away from a fight with an erection that's true and then and then you have like a big sympathetic drive when you ejaculate that's what they taught us so point and shoot point and shoot yeah no idea if oh, that's okay yeah um that's probably why like the deep breathing can help like you know if you if you're getting there too quick apparently Alex, what do you think about that? I haven't heard of that one. Well, before. I think that's why tantric yoga is important. You know, it is very important, very important. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, there's one thing you take away from this: <laughs> this is tantric yoga. Yeah, yeah. Heart um, rate variability. Heart rate
1: variability. So you have two branches of the nervous system, and essentially, what should happen is that the amount of time between your heartbeats when you're in a an unstressed state should be variable. That's why we're talking about heart rate variability. Um, and so it's not a really regular beat. It's on a very micro level. So you can't detect it, you know, just by feeling it or hearing it, but you can detect the electrical impulses that cause your heart to beat. And ideally you want them to be pretty variable and unpredictable. Uh, however, if you're in a sympathetic state, the fight or flight or ejaculation state, you then, <laughs> as it's known, you know, <laughs> if you're constantly in that state, then constantly ejaculate, constantly ejaculate, I Schwarzenegger in the gym. Yeah, pretty good. It sounds all right, actually, but you, what's happening is that your sympathetic nervous system is kind of overriding the signal to the heart, and then your heartbeat is very regular. Right. So essentially what that means is that if you're in a highly stressed state, your heart rate variability is going to go down. Um, and so we can use this as an indicator for, you know, which side of the nervous system you're kind of spending more time in, to put it really basically. Um, so heart rate variability is pretty popular at the moment i don't think it's like it's one measurement some people base all of their training around it but it's one measurement and generally if that's if we're seeing a massive change in that um that's a lagging indicator so you're already fatigued if that's changed um you know and other things would be things like your desire to train um like longer term mood changes uh loss of appetite um disrupted sleep uh, all of those sort of things like big drops in performance, injury, stuff like that. That's, that's all lagging. So if you're in that, at that point already, then
2: you're already pretty fatigued. Get really injured and it's like, oh, bam, time to rest. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I yeah. knew I was about to Oh, rest. man. Forced, forced rest. Yeah. That's actually I was really ejaculating
1: bad. so much and then... <laughs>
2: yeah, hurt myself. Something. I should have known. <laughs> pulled something and stuff. Yeah, like, yeah, my wrist hurts. <laughs> um, it's actually really interesting to me that um, the heart rate variability goes down... Um, when your sympathetic tone is up, because yep. that's completely counterintuitive mm. initially, but that's got to do with the actual like the actual nervous input to the heart, doesn't it? Because yep. you have spontaneous depolarization of the heart, yep. right? And then with sympathetic nervous input, you can like impose a faster heartbeat. That's how it yes, works. Yes. Right? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's super duper interesting. Um, I think we've, from a conceptual standpoint, covered a lot of a lot of useful stuff and also some less useful stuff like the ejaculation things. Um, <laughs> I wouldn't put that on the other side. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, highly useful. Don't ejaculate near comp because it'll make you stressed. Yeah. Muhammad Ali. True.
0: Yeah. Someone asked me that. I won't say who it was. Someone asked me that before that comp. Like, What should I Can mean? I have a wank the night before? I was like, yes.
2: Have heaps. In, in fact, yeah, <laughs> here's your if program. It, fair, if it helps you sleep. Five by 10 years. Yeah. If it helps you sleep, 100%. That's what I think. I agree. Um, like, as in not saying from experience, that's just a purely conceptual, if it helps you sleep, then mm. whatever. Mm. And if it doesn't help you sleep, if you stay awake from guilt because you went to like, a really religious school or something, and, and you feel bad, don't do it.
0: Yeah. So Tom Clark, don't do it. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Actually, you know, what? we're on the topic. We might as well talk about it. <laughs> Here we go. When I was in PDHPA at school, I'm like 15, and it's the best thing in the world. You get like 25, 15-year-old boys into a classroom, and, they, and the PD teacher has to sit down and talk about masturbation, <laughs> right? And so poor, um, what was his name? Inches his name was Gareth Inches, but, um, and when he, when he supervised cadets, that, really, that sounds made up. Was that was that really his <laughs> that name. <laughs> and when, and when he did cadet supervision, people would steal radio so that they could do call sign nine or inches. Um, <laughs> because it was so funny. But anyway, he's got to sit up the front of the classroom and talk to us about masturbation. And it was the most like, like ambivalent description ever. Cause he didn't want to like alienate anyone. She so was like masturbating's really normal. And then he, and then he looked around and go, but it's really normal not to masturbate. And so, and so I was like, bro, I just need to be told what to do and how to do it. <laughs> and, and, and he sat there and it, he was like, he was pretty young as well at the time. It was so funny. He basically just gave us 20 minutes of chapter and verse about how you can or can't masturbate if you choose to. It's not wrong to do it, but it's pretty wrong as well. We're an Anglican school. Don't look at porn. But it's very normal to look at porn. And like, yeah, it was just bizarre. It was fantastic stuff. I feel like 15's a bit late for that chat. Hmm? what are you saying about yourself at 14 years old that I need to tell your mother about? <laughs> I'm sure she already knows. <laughs> yeah. you know, I was so close to wrapping up the podcast with a really professional, hey Luke, can you give us like, you know, just some basic like important takeaway information about fatigue. But I feel like we've just nailed it. In yeah. the past three or four minutes. Yeah, definitely. So if
0: you feel like it, have a wank. Yeah. <laughs> or not. <laughs> you either <might> way. Yeah. <laughs> not? Yeah, if well, you
2: don't feel like it, don't. No. Yeah, well, you might be tired. <laughs> 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 oh <God. laughs> well, Yeah, can this you, is degenerative. <laughs> no, this is a very degenerate podcast. I, um, oh, I can't wait for you to put the swipe up for this on your Instagram oh, and yeah, just lose thousands of followers. Um, <laughs> but prior to that, can, yeah, can you give us just the nuts and bolts basic practical takeaways, what's fatigue, what do we need to care about, and what shouldn't we care about? Yeah. So when we train, we
1: induce fatigue, and we just got to be aware of the fact that we don't want fatigue to accumulate too quickly or too much, because that's going to impact our ability to keep training hard. So we need to make sure that we're managing fatigue mostly through doing the right amount of work in the gym. So not like going balls to the wall all the time. Um, You can manage that with the odd deload, Uh, And just making sure that your training volume is in a good spot Um, Other than that, we just want to make sure that all the peripheral factors outside of that are in place So, you know, decent nutrition, like regular sleep Making sure we're taking time to de-stress So relaxation time is really important Um, All of those little things can help to manage our fatigue But nothing's going to be quite as powerful as just managing your actual training volume Uh, I guess that's like the main takeaway for everything
2: um, <clears throat> guys, Luke has joined us twice before on the podcast. We mentioned that. First was in about episode 13. 12. 12 mm. on nutritional periodization. And then he came back in episode 39. I thought it was 47. I couldn't tell you. It's definitely not 47. Um, he joined us somewhere <laughs> joined us somewhere in the 30s to 40s to talk about training volume. Um, and obviously, he's come back today. But Luke also does a whole lot of other very high-quality educational um, educational work both through his Instagram account and on his website, Fitness Fundamentals. Luke, do you want to just let everybody know where they can find you, where they can get in contact with you for coaching and what products you do offer?
1: Yeah, so I have a membership site that you've written something for, which I thought was very good as well. Thank you. Um, So you can check that out. There is a free trial for that. Uh, If you visit luketulloch.com, then pretty much everything is there. So the blog's getting a lot more populated. There's a newsletter. There's links to my Instagram. There's links to the membership site. Uh, It's probably
2: just the easiest way. 39. 39. What was the 39 there you How um, did you say? 37. Okay. It wasn't can, too far. you like mm, um, Yeah, and Luke, you also have a podcast? I do have a
1: podcast. It's just my name, Luke Tulloch. Podcast. Okay. Luke yeah. Talik podcast. That Luke Tulloch Podcast. I suppose... I don't think I've actually called it that. Coming 2020, Luke Tulloch the Isn't musical. It the Luke Tulloch Podcast? Maybe. I don't know. I'm well, I mean... I, like... I didn't really come up with a clever name like Weekly Weights. Or a jingle. Or... Or masturbation talk. Nothing. <laughs> nothing. Uh, there's no point
2: in listening to it, frankly. <laughs> well, your point? Yeah, Luke's podcast tends to be like a 20-minute dissection of a topic in a really methodical, definitely planned <laughs> panel. <laughs> so, completely unlike our discussions about masturbation and, and occasionally lifting. Um, Luke, thank you so much for joining us, mate. Um, it's been a pleasure to have you on. So, I'm Will Berkman at pt. You can message me anything you want about fatigue or masturbation. <laughs> I'm Alex Hayes at Alex Hayes on the School Process And Luke. I am underscore Luke
1: Tullock at Instagram. Do not message me anything about masturbation. I'm not interested. He's married, guys. Um, (laughs) (laughs) All right. Thanks so much for joining us guys. We'll talk to you next week.